you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 19. We'll spend uh, some time in Revelation 19, and we'll also go over to Revelation 21. And um, we're going to skip Revelation 20, um, not because it's unimportant, but it fits within a larger theme of Jesus uh, being a king and a warrior. And in Revelation 20, he is going to finally defeat Satan. And um, so we'll, we'll look at 19 and skip it and go over to 21. This is God's word, Revelation 19. We'll start in verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of the God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. Pray with me. Dear Lord, your word is beautiful, and John reminds us that blessed are they who read from this book right here. Father, it's a blessing to read these words. John saw things and he heard things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. And you've been pleased to have these things recorded that we might see and hear through his words. Father, increase our desire and our hunger for you and for the things of the living God. Speak through your servant. Forgive my sins. Bind the enemy who would seek to not allow your word to go deep into our hearts. Go to war against him. And bless your people, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. In Tim Keller's book, Meaning for Marriage, he has a chapter, and, and, and it's on singleness. And uh, in this chapter, he actually gives a history of dating. And he starts by saying that in ancient times, and in many cultures present to this day, that as couples thought about marriage, one of the primary vehicles for pursuing marriage was through a, an arrangement, an arrangement made by the parents of the bride and the groom. And in cultures today that arranged marriages are still popular, that prominent or wealthy families would arrange their, their, their offspring to be married to protect their prominence or wealth, this also happened for political reasons, to form political allies. You might remember David when he defeated Goliath, that one of the, the things that Saul gave him was his own daughter. Um, there were also marriages for practical reasons. You have a son, I have a daughter, we live next to each other, we know each other, you two should get married. There were marriages uh, for theological reasons that were arranged. You might remember Genesis 24 when uh, Abraham is about to die. And he tells his servant, uh, I need to find a wife for my son, Isaac. And he tells his servant, do not choose a woman who is from Canaan. Rather, go over here and find a woman who fears the Lord. And so Abraham's servant makes a journey and he finds Rebekah. And Isaac is still back over there. He still has not seen or laid eyes on his future wife. And the servant, pleased with the Lord, show me the woman you would have for my servant, for my, my, my servant Isaac. And you know how the story goes, that Rebekah is chosen and she is taken back by the servant of Abraham and she is presented to Isaac and they marry. Arranged marriages are in the Bible. But Keller makes the case that something happened in the 1700s, that the motive for marrying uh, was love, and the more culturally dominant uh, way to go about this was a system that we call courtship. 
And under courtship, uh, a, a man might be interested in a woman, but, but he would have to date her or pursue her under the oversight of the family, particularly the father. And by courting her and pursuing her and dating her in the context of a home, the family would have eyes on the character of the young man. They would have eye, he would have eyes on how she relates in her family. Keller goes on to say, but this changed around the 1900s. Matter of fact, in 1914, the word dating first appeared in the dictionary, and it wasn't about assigning when something happened chronologically. Dating was in the dictionary in 1914 as a new definition that described what a man would do where he would pursue a woman, receivably for marriage, but the goal was to take her outside of the home. And so they would go out on dates and that the two people would be turned towards one another and the parents could, could possibly not even know the character or the integrity. And Keller says another shift has happened and in today's culture, we live in what we would call the hookup culture where marriage is an afterthought, where it's not even on the radar. Now, why do I begin with walking us down the history of dating? Because so much of the language in the Bible likens your salvation to a marriage. And if we import our skewed views of earthly marriages onto the spiritual union between God and his people, then we do a grave injustice to understanding the depth and the mysteries and the beauties of what it means to be united to Jesus in a spiritual marriage. Now, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you from the book of Revelation that one way we can look at Advent is a king who's greater than David, who comes to this earth to win the heart and the salvation of his bride. Now, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Revelation 22. Our overarching theme for our Advent series has been a king greater than David. Look at Revelation 22:16. These are some of the last words out of Jesus' mouth in your Bible. This is the glorified, ascended Jesus talking here. Did you notice who he still identifies with? Look at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. So right there, Jesus, the last thing that comes out of his mouth, he is still identifying himself as being the son of David that will reign forever. Now, the question that we have to ask is, what would this greater son of David do? Well, he would be born. Right, read our call to worship. It was around the birth of Jesus, but you could turn to Revelation chapter 12 and guess what you're going to see there? The birth of Jesus. It's right there in Revelation chapter 12 when John sees a woman and he sees her giving birth and crying out in pains and agony of childbirth. 
and the person, look at verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who will rule the nations with a rod and of iron. But notice what happens in verse 3. A red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, his tail swept down a third of the stars, and he stood before the woman so that, 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 that he might devour her child. What is that? That's Herod who hears about King Jesus, who's acting as a pawn of Satan to try to wipe the Messiah out. And then what does Revelation 12 say? No, the hair, he could not wipe him out. That that child and that woman, they were protected by God Almighty. That's God sending them to Egypt and protecting them through angels, telling them where to go and where to hide and when to come back. And so the question becomes, why was this king, this son of David, this son of God, this child of Mary, why was he born? Revelation 19 says he was born to save his bride, to marry her. And it's a good old, old-fashioned arranged marriage. Before the foundations of the world the father had already told the son, you have a bride, I have chosen her for you. And if you name the name of Jesus before you ever were, the father had already given you your husband and your king. And it was Jesus. And you didn't know it, but it was true. You have been selected and chosen by God for a beautiful arranged marriage. And here is what Jesus does that breaks the mold. Arranged marriages would be of equal people of equal statuses. I'm wealthy. I want to keep our wealth so we will marry. I'm like this and we want to keep this and so you two will marry. And here is what Jesus does. He doesn't have anyone his equal. And so what he does is he goes and he pledges his love for someone beneath him. He wants to turn harlots like you and me who commit a spiritual adultery into his housewife. He wants to take peasants and make us his princesses. And this is grace. And this is goodness. And this is lavish love. What I want to do this morning is unpack this love for us under three headings, and they all begin with the B. Hopefully you can remember it. In Jesus, you have a king who has, will, and is brawling for you. And when I say brawling, I mean fighting, right? If you look at this passage, Jesus is called righteous and a man of war. As a matter of fact, when right after you see the rejoicing, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, you move right down there into the next thing that John sees. And John says, heaven opened up and behold, I see a white horse, but the focus isn't on the white horse. The focus is on the one on the white horse and the one on the white horse is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Then he's described. And these aren't just 
physical descriptions. These are spiritual descriptions of the one on the white horse. He's a man of war, and his eyes are, are like a flame of fire. He sees everything, and on his head are many diadems. He is crowned with many crowns, and he has a name that's written that no one knows but himself. He is infinitely knowledgeable. And look behind him. The armies of heaven are also arrayed in, 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 in fine linen, white and pure, and they were following him on white horses. And on his robe, verse 16, and on his thigh, he has a name that is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In the book of Revelation, all, if we miss, if we get caught up in the numbers and the beast and the prostitutes, if we, if, if we see all of that and want to get into all of that and we miss that the main focus in the book of Revelation is Jesus, he's called the lion, he's called the lamb, he's called king of kings, lord of lords, the offspring of David, he's called faithful and true, that, that he is the one person that's at the center of the visions. He's on center stage here. He's a brawler. And we know he's about to brawl because of the next thing that John sees in verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and he called all the birds that fly overhead, Come, you gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and riders and all men free and slave, both small and great. What? The birds are being summoned to come and eat everybody? No, they're not being summoned to eat everybody. They're being summoned to eat those, in verse 19, who were trying to make war against the one sitting on the horse. That language, the birds eating and gorging themselves. You remember in 1 Samuel when David and Goliath fought? What did Dave, Goliath say to David? I'll kill you this day. And the birds of the heavens will eat your flesh. And in the ir irony of this passage, you know what John sees? No. The flesh of Jesus' enemies are about to be eaten. This is war language. A war is about to happen. Right before the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's a battle. And Jesus will brawl for his bride, and he will defeat Satan in chapter 20, and he will hand him over, and he will be banished forever. But did you notice Jesus' description? It's clear that all who follow him in verse 14, that they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. But look at Jesus', look at his, what he has on in verse 13 that he's clothed in a robe that has been dipped in blood. Whose blood is that? Is that the blood of his enemies? Or is that the blood that's his? You see, in the book of Revelation, it opens up in chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. 
In Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, in the book of Revelation, going back to the first chapter, Jesus is identified not just as the conquering king, but the suffering servant, the lamb that was slain. And so I think what's happening here is Jesus has on his battle attire. Why? Because he has already been in battle. Where? On the cross. When he shed his blood to cover the sins of his bride. He bled. He's brawling there on the cross. And it's not with weapons of this world. It's through beautiful humility, the laying down, the giving up of his life. He brawled for us on the cross. Revelation 19 and 20 says he's going to brawl again before the consummation of his marriage. He will stop at nothing to see his bride walk down the aisle and give in to him. During this pandemic, I've had the privilege, and it is a privilege, of walking with families who had marriages and weddings already on the calendar. And they had these dates on the calendar last year. And then COVID happened. The first one, Otis and I were on the way to San Antonio, and I started hearing about this virus. My daughter gives me a mask. Daddy, please wear this. And I go to San Antonio to speak at a church, and my childhood friend, can you marry us while you're out here? Yep. I got back to Jackson, and everything was shut down. And a couple says, hey, our photographer has backed out. Our cake decorator has backed out. We still want to get married. Will you marry us? Yeah, we'll do it safely. Another couple had lavish plans. And it ended up being in their front yard. And the, and the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are lined up in the street. And neighbors are pulling out chairs across the street. Another couple had borrowed somebody's house. Another couple Everyone's wearing masks, and we're doing it small. Another couple right around a pool in their backyard. And you know what they've taught me? How relentless love is. They've sacrificed plans and their vision. If it means we got to wear masks, we'll wear masks. If it means that we have to socially distance, we'll socially distance. If it means we have to change venues, we'll change venues. Why? Because they are committed to getting married. What if I told you that Jesus says, do you think I'm different? I want you. And I will not let anything get in the way of you being mine. I'll lay down my life. I'll take on flesh. I'll be born of a woman. I'll be spit upon. I'll be ridiculed. I'll be mocked. I'll lay my life down, even though I'm the author of life, if that is what it means for you to be mine. You got a king in Jesus who's a brawler for a husband. 
He has fought for you. He will fight for you. And he is fighting for you right now. The next thing we see in this text is that you have a king in Jesus who has and will beautify you. Did you notice the hallelujahs in our passage? Right there at the beginning of of chapter 19, verse 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, why, why the joy? Why Let us rejoice. Why the joy? It's because the marriage supper of the Lamb is about to happen. Now, to understand this, you have to understand Hebrew weddings. In a Hebrew culture, and you saw this in our uh, call to worship, you would have a betrothal. And that is way more binding than our engagement. So binding that to, 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 to undo it, it, you actually had to divorce. And that, that is what was in our call to worship. There's a betrothal. And then there's a, a dowry payment of some sort. You see that in Genesis 24 when, when uh, Abraham's servant finds Rebekah. He gives her gold. He gives her rings. He gives her family wealth. Why? It's a down payment. It's to prove that, no, we really do have means to take care of her. And then there's a waiting period. And during that waiting period, there are plans. And then the wedding day comes and the bride will, the groom will process to the home of the bride. And the bride has adorned herself and the groom is decked out in his attire. And the groom and the bride, they process to the place where the wedding will take place. And the wedding takes place and the bride and the groom are given time to consummate the marriage and to go somewhere in private and be alone. And then they return and they're is joy because they are married and the witnesses get to enter into the joy that that's what's happening here. Jesus is betrothed to the church. He is given a down payment to the church and that's the Holy Spirit as a pledge that there is more to come. And what this, what John gets to see is the day, the day when the marriage comes, when Jesus comes back. And he gets to go and get his bride and he is decked out in his best attire and blood is on it as a reminder that he has laid down his life and then he breaks the mold. Did you notice what happens here? He gives her the dress. It was granted her to clothe herself. This is mind blowing, y'all. Now, what, what does this mean? That it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. G.K. Beale, who has a, I think it's 1,300 page commentary on the book of Revelation. And he writes the Old Testament background to this passage is Isaiah 61, where the Lord clothes his people with garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness. Isaiah's phrases underscore the activity of God in providing these clothes. This righteousness comes ultimately from God. As the next verse reveals, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up. And so one way to look at this is that this dress is being given to the bride. And that that is in step with what you see in Revelation 21.6, where Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The generosity of Jesus. And so what we think is happening here is on that day, Jesus will clothe his people. And we stand in his righteousness now. 
and it's complete and it's perfect. But on that day, it will be beautiful. We will fully be and truly be all that he has destined us to be. He will take off our filthy garments and wrap us in his righteousness and make us a suitable bride for himself. It's going to beautify us. But you get another peek into him beautifying the bride over in 21.4 because Jesus says, look, look at what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And here's the question. What causes pain and what causes mourning in the Christian life right now? Certainly it's persecution. Certainly it's the world around us. But what else causes you mourning? Is it not your own sin? That when you look in the mirror, when you think about your life, that for Christians, Jesus warns us of being quick to judge others, quick to getting specks out of their eyes when we have logs in our own. For Christians, we are more grieved by our own sins than the sins of others. It's why, why, why Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. It's why Paul says, you are arrogant, ought you rather not mourn. It's why James 4 says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's why David says, my bones break when I ponder my sins and I hide them and don't confess them. Christians are not just grieved. We are not just mourned by what goes on around us. We're mourned by what happens in us. And the good news is that one day Jesus says there will be no mourning. And there will be no pain. And it's true, nothing out there will cause you to mourn. And nothing out there will cause you pain. But he's actually going to make it so that nothing in here causes you mourning. And nothing in here causes you pain. If you go look up Martha Stewart or the not.com, they're going to give you a list of what the groom pays for and what the bride pays for. The groom covers the engagement ring, the wedding ring, the honeymoon, the rehearsal dinner, gifts for the groomsmen, the wedding license, the officiant's fee, the bride's bouquet, the music, the entertainment, etc. And the bride. It's supposed to cover the ceremony, the flowers, the food for the reception, the groom's ring, the stationery, the things that get mailed out, and the transportation, and of course, the dress, right? You can't forget the dress. And here's where Jesus says, no, we're we, we not abiding by them rules. You see, at my wedding, I'm providing the dress for the bride. At my wedding, I'm heralding and inviting the world to behold. At my wedding, I made flowers. I'm going to be the florist. Do you see how lavishly gracious Jesus will be for his bride to beautify her? He breaks the mold. And you've seen those makeover shows, haven't you? 
when a family member notices a family member who's maybe depressed and not getting out and not taking care of themselves. And so they have this bright idea, let's do a makeover. And so they link them up with a stylist or maybe with a fitness coach or someone who does hair. And here's what they do. They say, okay, tell me your problem areas. Tell me the parts of you that you don't like. And I'm going to show you how to put that concealer on. And I'm going to show you how to apply the right color to your hair to hide the gray. And I'm going to show you, you need to wear these type of clothing that that hides this and, and, and it shows this, right? Here's what they're doing. It's all cosmetic. All they're doing is covering. And here is what Jesus is going to do with your ugly parts. He's not going to cover them. He's not going to cosmetically hide them. He is going to obliterate them. That you and I will look in the mirror. And when he is finished with us, there will be nothing ugly about you. Your pride is gone. Your partiality will be gone. Your lust will be gone. Your fear of what people think about you will be gone. All the parts about you that you know, that you're ashamed of, when Jesus gets finished with you, you will look in the mirror and you will not recognize yourself. That if you could behold who you will be, C.S. Lewis says you will be tempted to bow down and worship yourself. If you could behold your future glory self, you're going to be so holy and so beautiful and so like Jesus that you'd be tempted to bow down. It's why Ezekiel 37, my servant David will be king and they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or their transgressions. I will save them from all of their backsliding, and I will cleanse them. You hear that? That's what you have coming. No more backsliding. No more defiling yourself with your idols. No more transgressing. No more turning your heart away from him. You won't be able to sin. He's going to make you that beautiful. And the last thing we see is your king will bring his home to you. Like all weddings, when the couple gets married, they go live together. Every couple I've married, That's what they're excited to do. I'm tired of living in separate houses. I'm tired of laying in my own bed. I'm tired of having to say goodbyes. You have a marriage, and then you're united under one roof to live together. It should not surprise us that right after the marriage, John sees a vision. I see a new city, and it's coming down from heaven, and it too is like a bride, 
who's adorned for her husband. This is the same John who wrote John 14. In John 14, what did Jesus tell the disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. It's why Ezekiel 34 says, I will set my servant David over them, and he will be a prince, and I will give, and he will give them land. And I will banish the wild beasts so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Like, that's the image when when the king David. David returns, King Jesus, that his servants can dwell in the woods and you're not going to get choked out by a snake. You're not going to get bit by a scorpion. You're not going to be mauled by a bear because in the home that he's preparing for you, you have nothing to be afraid of. So it shouldn't surprise us to see this city here. And it's a beautiful city. There's no dying in this city. There's no sea in this city that there are gates, there's safety in this city, and God is in this city, and nothing evil is in this city. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, they won't be there. And here's the twist. We often think about us going up. John sees a city coming down. I see it coming down. When I was 12, I stopped letting my parents buy my shoes. And that was, what's that, 1989-ish, somewhere, somewhere around there, 1990. And really, it was because of the Jordan 4. When the Jordan 4 came out, y'all, it kicked off the best decade of sneakers. The Air Max 90, the Air Max 95. Reebok came out, remember the little pump it ups? Where you squeeze the button and it puts air in your shoe? What about the Bo Jacksons, the cross trainers? What about the Deion Sanders? Y'all remember those, the Diamond Turfs? What about Penny Hardaway shoes, the foam posits? Look. The best decade for sneakers was in the 90s. You cannot debate me on that. The problem was that they cost. And my mama wasn't paying $125 for no shoes. So I got you 50. And so my dad came up with this idea. If you want $125 shoes, you got to put up half. And so we started cutting grass. West Jackson, North Jackson, South Jackson, Ferris Street, where my family had some lots. And I finally got a, a woman across the street from my grandmother on the north side of town. She was very generous. We love to cut her yard. And five years in, she says, I'm sorry, but I'm moving. I'm like, man, we'll miss cutting your yard, right? But when she said she was moving, she meant moving. We showed up, and there was an 18-wheeler in her yard picking up her house in the 90s. So I'm, I'm up here watching this, and I sat out there for hours watching this lady literally move her house. 
She bought some land outside, I mean, out south somewhere, and she was going to put her house down near Byram and change the landscape of Byram. That's the image here, that Jesus has a house that he's been building. And one day his house is going to come down here. And when his house comes down here, it's going to transform everything here. And it's going to be our dwelling place where we live with him forever. And it's no dying there and no suffering there and no sickness there and no sin there and no Satan there and no darkness there because he has made all things new. He has a home that he is bringing to you. In your bulletin, you'll notice um, a sheet. I'm going to grab mine. I think I left it over here. Y'all give me one second. (laughs) In this bulletin, you have what we're calling an emotional wheel. And we use this as we do counseling here, as we are walking with couples to help them understand how to identify what they're feeling and how to communicate to the other person what they're feeling more accurately. And you'll notice these seven base emotions, feeling bad and fearful and angry and disgusted and sad, but also happy and surprised. This is how good the home is going to be that Jesus is preparing for you. Five out of seven of these base emotions that you and I feel in this life, you won't feel there. You won't be provoked, and you won't be hostile, and you'll never be persecuted, and you'll never be rejected. You'll never be scared, and you'll never be anxious. You'll never be indifferent. You'll never be bored. You'll never be disappointed. You'll never feel awful. You'll never be appalled. You'll never be embarrassed. You'll never feel horrible. You'll never feel inferior. You'll never feel guilty or depressed. You'll never feel vulnerable. Do y'all see how much of this we carry in this life? And here's what I'm telling you. This is the good news. It won't be there. We're going to need new categories and new emotions and new experiences to fill this in because the home that Jesus is preparing for you, none of these things will dwell there. And none of the things that cause them will dwell there. That's good news. It makes me want to go home. Makes me want to see him. How do you respond to something like this? To a king who brawls for you, to a king who will beautify you, to a king who will bring his home to you. How do you respond? How do we respond? It's what G.K. Bill says about Revelation 19, 7 and 8. He says, I'm aware that there's a tension in those verses 
On the one hand, the bride prepares herself, while on the other hand, she is given her garments. On the one hand, she is given the righteousness of Christ, and on the other hand, the right, what she's wearing is the righteous deeds of the saints. Which one is it? He says it's both. One way of resolving the tension is by suggesting that a transformed life is the proper response to those God has justified. In fact, it would be better to view 7 and 8 as suggesting that a transformed life is not only the proper response, but it is the necessary response. How do we respond? How do we respond to a king who loves us this way? It's by holy living and preparing our lives and our hearts for him. It's by thinking about him and dwelling upon his word, by doing righteous things. May that be true for us this Advent season. May we respond to the great love of this king with a love of our own for him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for being a great king to your people. Thank you that you brawl for us. You're not weak and timid. You're bold and courageous. You're a conquering king. Thank you, Jesus, for the promise that you will beautify us. That all of the ugly parts about us that we see and that others see, that there is coming a day when they will exist no more. Thank you for the home that you have for us. We will dwell securely with stability. And the greatest gift of all is that you will be there with us and we will see you and be seen by you. We will know you and be known by you. Father, write these words on our hearts. Help us to be a bride who responds to a groom's love with great joy and adoration and longing. Do this that your name will be praised. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.